I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good tuna, but I think I paid too much. I am the king of the ring. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 135. Coming at you from the Tomihisa Cho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. The armpit of Asia. I am your host, Matthew PMBigelow.com. This is, of course, the podcast that focuses on AI market trends in Japan, Society 5.0, rising conflict in the Middle East, odd items, and more. And we thank you for joining today's podcast. We are very, very busy, busy, busy people. But、uh, one thing we talk about is diversity and how amazing it is. And if you don't have it, well, then you're just a sucker. But Japan has no diversity, blah, blah, blah. And it's becoming less so. But one place I always see a lot of diversity is when I go kids' clothes shopping with my wife at the Infamous or famous or the main center for all clothing shopping for kids that is in Japan, the Mecca, is Akachan Honpo, babies something.、Um, and there you see a lot of mixed race couples, especially in Kinshicho, Tokyo.、Uh, but one thing you also see is that everybody goes there, it doesn't really matter what. Tax bracket you live in, unless you're the super elite、uh, royalty family, in which case I'm pretty sure they have their own Akacha Hompo on their、um, imperial grounds there in central Tokyo. But I saw this one guy and I was very impressed with, with what he was doing with himself. I imagine him to be very new money. He was walking around with a top knot on, but he had. Like a cloth over the top knot, and it was poking out this back of a kind of like the side or, or something. He had like a baseball cap on as well, somehow. But he also had a giant diamond necklace and a giant gold necklace and a scraggly goatee. And he was wearing a like a baseball uniform from America, like had some dude's name on it, just the top half. And、the bottom half were like these jeans and that rumpled up at the bottom, just perfectly so. And then he, I think he was wearing Air Jordans or something like that and showing them off by like, you know, hiking out the tongues so that the jeans would crumple behind the tongue of the, of the shoe. And I was like, wow, I would never see that guy just walking around. Obviously, he's driving if he's, you know, going to Akacha Hompo with his. Wife, wherever she's from, could be Filipino. I think the Filipino women would、uh, find such attire very attractive, but you don't really see dudes walking around with diamond and gold necklaces. And that's the、uh, diversity report of the week. Are you happy that there's diversity in Japan? Those horns are pretty blaring. Um, let's begin the podcast with a little bit of a、um, it's oh my god, it's OMGWTF. This is kind of just an interesting one.、Uh, not too,、um, how do I say, overwritten by the horrible people at Sora News 24.、Uh, this is from,、uh, I believe,、uh, the Associated Press, but it's focusing on Japan. 
Um, and I'll be posting pictures of this to MatthewPMBigelow.com, which is where you can go for all the show notes. Sometimes I say some crazy stuff on this thing, but all the show notes are there. So if you think that's insane or I'm just making it up, go to MatthewPMBigelow.com. It's a great resource and an archive for um, tracking these uh, AI trends and, and you know, the, the shipping wars that I believe we're in and all that. Watch that melted during atomic blast over Hiroshima sells for more than $31,000. Probably about 5 million yen. Uh, And yeah, there's pictures. It's really cool. A watch melted during the August 6th, 1945 atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Japan has sold for more than $31,000 at auction in Boston. The watch is frozen in time at the moment of the detonation of of an atomic bomb over the Japanese city, 8.15 a.m. During the closing days of World War II, according to Boston-based RR Auction, the winning bid in the auction that ended Thursday was $31,113. You got to get in that 33 in there somehow, don't you? You Masons or whatever they are. What does 33 mean? Tell me. I want to know. The artifact was recovered from the ruins of Hiroshima and offers a glimpse into the immense destruction of the first atomic bomb detonated over a city. The small brass stone watch, a rare survivor from the blast zone, was auctioned alongside other historically significant items. According to the auction house, despite the cloudiness of the crystal caused by the blast, the watch hands remain halted at 8.15 a.m. The moment when the B-29 Enola Gay dropped the little boy atomic bomb. That makes me think of weird pedo stuff. That's that you could have could have called it not little boy, and you didn't need to call the airplane the Enola Gay. Although it was 1945, and they did have different ways of thinking about words back then. Uh, quote: It is our fervent hope that this museum-quality piece will stand as a poignant educational symbol, serving to not only remind us of the tolls of war, but also to underscore the profound destructive capabilities that human must strive to avoid, so that we can make money off of it. Oh wait, not that last part. Said Bobby Livingston, executive vice president at RR Auction. Quote: This wristwatch, for instance, marks the exact moment in time when history changed forever. Um. Oh, other items. A signed copy of The Little Red Book by Chinese leader Mao Zedong, or Montokto, which sold for $250,000. Now that's communism. A signed check from George Washington, woo, sold for $135,000. What? Mao Zedong beat out Georgie for more than 100000 Oh my God. And Buzz Aldrin's Apollo 11 Lunar Module Prep Checklist, which sold for $76,533, according to RR Auction. I've seen that checklist by Buzz Aldrin because I used to be really into um, the moon and the space missions. And the checklist, it just says over again, it's fake. We're not going there. I don't need anything. Uh, Bring some sleeping pills. Uh, we're fooling them, uh, they don't know, and, and on and on the checklist it goes. <laughs> so, or does it? Uh, there we go. If you're interested, MatthewPMBigelow.com to check out the atomic watch that's been melted, frozen in time. Today we're going to take a look at Japan Society 5.0 right off the bat here. Um, and we're going to do a little bit of a deep tie, deep deep dive into the spread of facial recognition technology in Japan. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. 
artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. AI and robots will enhance human ability and expand our infinite possibilities. So that's, of course, the promotional video that I got from YouTube in 2016-2017 from the Japanese government about their plans for Japan Society 5.0. Uh, 1.0 would be hunter-gatherer, and it goes up. 4.0, industrial or digital society. And 5.0 is like an AI society, wireless communications, all that stuff. And um, it's not going very well, but... There's like, I always mention this. I worked for five years at a telco in Japan as an AI teacher, more or less as an English teacher to help people there understand um, the trends in English around the world for uh, technology and, and, and so on. Um, Japanese people are very knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about these things, but they're not very good at communicating them. And they're not very good at understanding things that are going on outside their field. It's it's like Ted Kaczynski's um, technological society, whatever it is, to the max. They don't know. like So, and uh, I did that for five years and I still keep in contact with some people there. I have plans to go out with uh, one of the, uh, an executive uh, who was at a different company now in the near future. And I stopped working there just after COVID hit. And, but I've kept up with the idea of Japan Society 5.0. I'm pretty much the only researcher in the country that looks at it um, as such. So there's that. Uh, and I, I, I focus on Japan Society 5.0 because it's AI, it's drones, it's next level technology and how the government um, plans to layer it in to society, uh, evenly distribute it and, and so on. And they're not very good at it because uh, it's mostly wireless technologies and most of Japanese engineering is very good at like train infrastructure or airplanes or airlines and safety and things like that. But when it comes to the new stuff, especially AI, uh, there's not a lot of young people compared to older people. And it's mostly a younger man's game or younger woman's game. And a lot of this younger talent gets eaten up by the major companies um, to try to, I don't know, find some solutions for the company that they can profit from. But the companies are so big, a lot of the times this talent just kind of melts into the company and we don't really hear about it. And then by the time it goes through the company bureaucracy, it's not as um, advanced or, 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 or useful as it is intended to be. And so it, anyways, it's, it's, I've, I've considered it to be fascinating. And um, when I look at the technology that's over the horizon, it's we are zooming towards it. And in the late 2010s, uh, the main fear of facial recognition was that the world would end up like China where they have like, a, a, I don't know, 700 million facial recognition cameras set up throughout the country and they're just everywhere. I was in China in 2019 in Beijing and 
I could identify which cameras were facial recognition cameras because I really studied the Chinese system hard. And I saw officers with security guards with facial recognition glasses. I saw people checking into hotels with facial recognition. This is like most people didn't even know about DD back then, uh, like an Uber service. All the foreigners are just like, take me to the Great Wall. I want to eat some noodles. Like they, they really weren't clued into how much of a surveillance state China was turning into. Um, and my fear was that, well, if this model spreads, we will just have facial recognition everywhere all the time. But thankfully, Japan's constitution and um, privacy laws are actually very strict. So it's taken a bit longer for it to filter into the daily usage. And it appears to be spreading in some areas more than others. I would imagine mainly due to um, lack of uh, labor in those areas and also lack of immigrants in those areas. Um, but it's mostly for consumer stuff. So I, I've, uh, I did some research and a lot of this stuff does not exist in the Japanese websites these days. I don't really know why. So it's translations from Japanese uh, websites into um, English. And unfortunately, I'm not using the better version of chat GPT, but it's mostly technical information. So it shouldn't be the nuance shouldn't be lost with the uh, the Google um, translation here. So this comes to us. The first one is from uh, the Nihon Nikkei, sorry, Shimbun, Nihon Keizai Shimbun, and uh, not the English one, which is taken over by the globalists, but the local one, which might have a little bit more leeway to report on things that are going on. Marubeni tests facial recognition payments on local transportation on Kumamoto city streetcars. This is in Kyushu. And in Kyushu, some of the city uh, places there really rely still on um, streetcars and trams and so on. Um, Marubeni has begun a demonstration ex experiment with the Kumamoto City Transportation Bureau for a payment service using, using facial recognition technology. When a passenger holds their face over a tablet, that's the translation. When a passenger holds, I'm going to hold my face. When a passenger holds their face over a tablet, I like AI translation, by the way. It's kind of fun. When a passenger holds their face over a tablet installed on a tram, the fare payment is completed in about two seconds. It's not enough. It needs to be faster. It needs to be 0 0.5. Utilizing the knowledge cultivated through the construction of transportation infrastructure, uh, they will encourage local transportation agencies to introduce the system, uh, aiming for full-scale introduction in fiscal 2024. That's in April, I believe. In December 2023, Marubeni placed tablets equipped with facial recognition systems on about 20% of the streetcars running in Kumamoto City. Uh, users can download the payment app in advance and register their facial recognition to use transportation empty-handed. It can also be used with a commuter pass and covers all lines. The demonstration is scheduled to last until the end of March. I can see this being very useful for people with um, disabilities, to be honest, and that's one thing that one way you can always shoehorn this technology into society is say it's for people with disabilities, but people that need to get their payment or their they can't fiddle with the coins or they can, but it takes a long time. If they can hold their face over the tablet for a couple of seconds, uh, as long as, as long as they're not too spastic with their disability, they would be able to pay and, and enter. Now, of course, and then you might say, well, this creates like a subgroup of experimental people and we don't know what are they tracking them? And, and does, does this create like, um, uh, you know, a, a second class digital citizen where now they have to rely on their biometric data to get around um, while everybody else doesn't? The 
The payment cards in Japan are very quick, by the way. The Suica or the uh, the near field chips where you hover it like an inch or two above, just zip, it goes in and out. So two seconds is actually a little bit of a long time. Um, it utilized a facial recognition platform developed by Marubeni. The systems and payment systems are connected using an application programming interface, an API, uh, and the payment system used the digital wallet function Bankit, provided by Aplus, a member of the SBI Shinsei Bank Group. Oh, I'm invested in them, and I've been using Shinsei Bank forever. As well as a commuter pass um, app from Lesip, uh, a developer of electrical components for vehicles. Now, this is where we kind of see where it's like, okay, you have a tablet, you have the digital wallet, and it's provided by a kind of a, a spun out or a, a subsidiary of the of a banking group and also by a chip maker. Like there could be multiple points of failure with such a thing. Um, so the fact that it's software as well, uh, connected via wireless, mm, it's a little dodgy. It's, it could be a little dodgy. The facial recognition technology was developed by RD Works Shibuya. The company provides facial recognition technology provided by a, uh, pro, uh, powered by AI, which has been introduced in Europe and Latin America. The system can identify faces even when passengers are wearing masks, and the recognition accuracy is over 99%. That's pretty good. How do they do it without masks? Or with masks, the usually that would be an array of cameras. You could all have a heat uh, camera, a thermal sensor, where the your biometric data points poke out through your mask based on the heat reading from the mask. Uh, there's multiple ways to do it. And okay, so Osaka plans to start doing it, and um, it goes on from there. So I'm going to be posting that up onto the website, MatthewPMBigelow.com. And uh, this is not available in English as far as I can tell. So for those of you listening in English, this is kind of a special. You're getting it here first before anywhere else in English, that is. Um, would you pay for your face on these things? I'm not sure. I kind of like having the commuter pass card because it's very fast. Mm, but maybe if I was traveling, I might consider using it. Because when you're traveling, you don't have everything organized in your bag as you usually would. And if you're if you're going to be in a city with a family and you know you're going to be going to some games and some hotels and things like that, it becomes a little bit of a, a like a, a resili resilience thing where, oh, my, uh, I, I forgot my key. I still have my face. Oh, I don't have enough money on my card. Oh, my face has connected to my credit card and things like that. Mm, you could kind of envision case, use cases where you would use it, perhaps. Next one. Fukuoka and Saga, an NEC collaboration of a facial recognition demonstration experiment. A demonstration experiment using facial recognition for payment and entrance management at supermarkets and other locations in Miyakawa City, Fukuoka Prefecture began on the 20th. I believe that is also in Kyushu. Trial and NEC. NEC is one of uh, the highest... Uh, rated facial recognition service providers in the world. I don't know how they do it, but they're one of the best. Uh, are collaborating. Oh, I've even seen like some uh, sample videos of uh, Zoom calls where they, they put one camera in the room and then the camera identifies the workers of NEC in the room and then it creates their own Zoom video screen 
where it zooms in on each person. So each person does not need to have their laptop open with the um, angle of the webcam on their computer. The one one webcam put up in the center of the room will identify all the faces and make individual screens for them for the Zoom call. Stuff like that. That's pretty interesting if you're in corporate. Um, So the trial at NEC are collaborating on payment and entrance management using facial recognition at supermarkets and restaurants in Miyakawa City with the aim of creating a safe, secure, and convenient city. Because if there's anything that Japan is not known for, Japan is not known for being safe, Japan is not known for being secure. Japan is not known for its convenience. It's like all it's known for. Why? That's a horrible thing. By utilizing NEC's facial recognition technology, which is said to have the world's highest authentication accuracy, it will be possible to perform authentication faster and stress-free than ever before. Um, it goes on from there. So that's just another one. So we have the facial recognition on the tram, facial recognition to get into some supermarkets, and then the next one here from Yahoo News, a facial recognition cash register is efficient as you can pay by looking at the camera. Um, this as well is in Fukuoka City. And I think this is more or less a um, copy of the previous one. So the release was held at a store in Miyakawa City where trial HD president Koichi Kameda had the cashier scan the barcode on a beer can, look into the camera, and the payment was completed within a second or two. Now, if you're like me, and sometimes you want to get a beer on the go, and you don't want to wait in a giant line, but you can't go into the the, the cashless line or the self-register line because you have booze on you and they need to confirm it, now we're kind of talking where if if the camera has your ID and some little information about you, it can authenticate your beer purchase. So you just want to get in, go in, get a, get a couple of cans. Maybe you're meeting some friends at the park and you want to have a beer in the sun, and but you don't want to wait in line next to a whole like 35 people with giant amounts of groceries in them. Zip in and zip out. Now you're talking. Now I don't care about my security because I have some beers on me. It uses NEC's high-precision authentication technology. Um, Okay, and that's going to be it. So the president said, if we connect the entire city, including stores, restaurants, offices, and residences with facial recognition, we can create a less stressful environment. We would like to work with NEC to popularize this technology. Now, this is where I kind of put my foot down and I say, as a guy, Jane, living in Japan, uh, this is wrong. Now, the main thing is that I mentioned earlier was that with China, it's everywhere all the time, and that's what we don't want. You would like to have the, the, the beginning and ending of such usage of technology to be clearly stated and understand that you're leaving the area of facial recognition technology, and now you're entering into an area that does not have it. Uh, because, of course, once the ones that has it, it's looking at your face. There's going to be cameras throughout the store. You don't think they have security cameras. You don't think that they have a security solution. Maybe that the bigger stores and, and supermarket chains or even uh, some of these larger shopping centers, uh, they might have uh, security uh, services provided to them that are outsourcing some of their camera technology to facial recognition companies as well. 
So if it keeps, if it's always a yes and, yes and, yes and, yes and, you inevitably end up like China. But if it's a no but, no but, we have it here, but not here. We'll have it here, but not here. We create these corridors of facial recognition free zones so that we can exist without having to uh, always have the feeling of the eye of Sauron on our back or that the sun is operated by the CIA and it's following us around town because essentially that's what it would become. Skynet would become like the all-seeing eye where you can't go anywhere without feeling that your biometric data is being scanned and harvested by something for somewhere. So this is, the, of course, the president wants to maximize his profits and he probably looks at this technology and sees it expanding with his company and going, ooh, we are now a special AI company. Let's go fire. Let's go higher and higher with, with money and money. But uh, you will create your own capitalistic panopticon by doing so don't do it it's not good next one i got one more this is the last one facial recognition for unmanned hotels are opening up one after another in central miyazaki city so it seems to me that kyushu is uh, becoming like the the hub of facial recognition services in japan by the way the first one i mentioned was from the nikkei the second one was from the um news outlet or press release outfit. I'm not sure what it is. KBC. The third one is from Yahoo. And this last one is from Newsdig, TBS Newsdig. So these are all, these are all different articles from different um, sources, from different companies and all of that. And they're all kind of pointing towards Kyushu for consumer related services. Interesting, isn't it? This is about hotels that are opening up in the central area of Miyazaki City. In recent years, new hotels have opened up uh, not only along the main streets, but also in the downtown area. Um, this company has, this newspaper has been covering why hotels are opening up so many with the latest facilities at each hotel. Let's continue. Um, the hotel has just been renovated. It's a very warm atmosphere. However, there is no one at the front desk. Um, this is just so many ads. Miyazaki Mango Hotel reopened on the 1st of February. It was opened by Hotelier, which operates 61 facilities, such as hotels and private lodging facilities, across the country. When you arrive at the hotel, you can check in using the tablet at the front desk. Enter the ID you received in advance via email, and the check-in is complete. So it's two-factor. Um, check-in and check-out are done using the tablet. The unique feature is that you do not have to face the front desk staff, increasingly becoming something you don't really need unless there's like a whole system. Now, here's the key point. This is why I included it. Also, as the name of the hotel suggests, they offer mango juice and mango ice cream for free. Um, so what, why is that the key point? Well, it adds something to use it. So you just don't want to walk into a place and have it be faceless. There's nobody there. You stare into a screen, boop, and it's like, here's your code, boop, and then you go, it's too dystopian. But if you walk into a place and go, where is your face? Like, oh, it's right here. You go, boop, then the tablet says, there is free mango juice and free ice cream behind you. Please make the most of it and please make it clean. If it's not clean, please push the button and a robot will come by or a staff member will come by shortly to help you. Oh, I'm being looked after here. There's some sort of hospitality going on because the concierge at the front door 
even the front desk staff there to greet you. Welcome to our hotel. We're smiley, nice people. But once you remove all of that, the key point is not to remove all of the humanity, but once you say, here's some mango juice and some mango ice cream, have a seat for a while before you go check into your room, why don't you? Or come back in 10 minutes, it'll still be here. That's the key point where the technology is just not there replacing all of the humanity, but you have some leftover segment, some some uh, some trifling amount of, of humanity left over to make people enjoy themselves as they're on vacation. And that's today's Japan Society 5.0 for the watches. Actually, I have a lot of other ones to take a look at. Um, but I think... I think that's going to be enough for today. So that's Japan Society 5.0 for today, recorded on February 26th, 2024. Japan Society 5.0, deep dive into facial recognition technologies being implemented in the island of Kyushu, Japan. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest... Let's just take a brief look at the economy. Here we go. Um... I should probably also mention that Japan also launched some very important rockets and satellites into space after failing to do so a few times. Congratulations, Japan. Uh, this next one, though, I would be remiss to not actually mention something. So this comes to us from the Asahi Shimbun, and it says, Japanese investors raise a glass to Nikkei record. Now, I'm kind of on two minds about this. I'm weak and strong on the Japanese economy. The stock market right now, is going gangbusters. But I'm a person who lives here on the daily life, and it's f coming back a little bit. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, when we look at the past uh, massive valuation of the Nikkei that was this high, it was the, during the Japanese bubble economy, and that was like people were flying to Hokkaido for lunch. People were just spending money everywhere. That That's what kind of created this myth that all Japanese are super rich because they were just flooded with so much money at that time. Uh, but this is a little bit different, but I would be remiss not to mention it. Japanese investors raise a glass to Nikkei record. Um, this, this was from a couple of days ago. At an intimate bar in Tokyo's Ginza district, Japanese investors toasted the day that Nikkei reached a new record high on Thursday after a wait of more than 34 years. Excitement among regulators at Stock Pickers, a networking bar where patrons discuss stock picking strategies over finance-themed cocktails, 
Could you imagine being around those people? Had been brewing since last week as the Nikkei teased just a few hundred points below its previous high of 38,957.44, scaled on the last trading day in December 1989. Quote, finally, the day has come, said 48-year-old IT company worker Norikazu Isono, who came to stock pickers to celebrate the Happy day on which the Nikkei share average rose as high as 39,156.97 points. The celebration of the 20 or so people gathered at the bar were muted in comparison to the wild excess and unbridled optimism among Japanese that brought about the late 1980s bubble and the Nikkei's previous record. So a couple of ideas about this. I'm not sure. This is just me thinking, uh, you know, on my... Uh, on my stool here with my feet up and a cigar in the air, you know, watching the smoke swirl around in the breeze by next to the open window. It's kind of that thing. Um, as we see China having a massive amount of uh, foreign investment just dissipate, just go go bye-bye. Uh, Japan is like seen as a safe haven in many cases. There's a lot of Japanese uh, companies that are seen as to be very stable um, and very uh, good for dividends and, and reliable for the uh, people that invest in it. They get their they get their returns on it. Um, also, the cheap yen as well. So right now, the yen is at a very very low level. So you have the the ability for people to pump money into Japan at very low rates as the money is looking to escape or divert away from China. And my theory is that. Um, the Japanese uh, central banks are going to use a variety of excuses to say that this is not the case of why the yen is so low. But why would you change it right now if you are in that world? If you have a very attractive investment ratio, low yen, into very attractive companies that are seen as stable in the stock markets with billions and billions and billions of dollars that need to go somewhere because they're not going to China anymore, why not dump it into Japan and uh, as, as, as everybody kind of says, we have inflation now and we have this construction boom and yada, 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 all this promise. That's kind of my working theory on, uh, on the current situation. But like the wild excess that's mentioned here, just to, just to touch on it, outboard tourism still low after COVID-19 inbound tourism recovers from the Asahi Shimbum, same source. Just to have like the, what I was mentioning earlier walk around these days still so many people wearing covid masks these are not the these are not the, the the i am ill masks i've been here since 2006 and i've seen masks come and go but i have never seen masks just stay for 4 years now but i've noticed in the past like 5 6 months a lot of younger women especially i would say between the ages of 17 and 22 they're getting rid of their masks, they're dressing sexy again, and they are going out with their friends and having good times, and uh, unabashedly so. And this kind of makes sense, because four years ago, those 22-year-olds were 18, those 16-year-olds were uh, 12, and all of those, 17, 18, they were 12, 13, 14. They are still, they can bounce back from a lot of the trauma from COVID. Uh, but a lot of the people that were in university at that time kind of had four years of their life, like three, two or three years just ripped apart. I don't think they're going to be 
um, doing very well in the long term. But we kind of see a bounce back in, in the younger population. Um, and, you know, when you have a bunch of girls dressing up to go out, you're going to have guys dressing and then people will spend some money to get, you know, get their bang on, get the bang on. But we'll see what happens. But anyways, discouraged by the weak yen and rising fuel costs, the number of Japanese travelers went abroad this winter was roughly half of pre-pandemic levels data shows. According to data released by the Japanese National Tourism Organization, 1.7 million people, Japanese people, traveled overseas in December and January. That's only 56% of the number of outbound travelers during the same period in 2019, which was before it all kind of hit December and January. Major travel agency HIS Co. reported making 21.7 billion yen from outboard uh, travel in December. Only 66.4% of its overseas travel figures from the same month in 2019. In particular, figures for trips to Hawaii and Micronesia remained less than half of the 2019 levels. Those are fun spots, by the way, for Japanese travel. It's not business travel to Seoul or Taipei or something like that. Hong Kong. Beijing. Uh, Nevertheless, the number of scheduled flights to and from Japan this winter had recovered uh, to 82.6% of the 2019 levels, according to the Transport Ministry. So all that means is inbound is going bonkers, outbound is going And so we have the stock market is getting, oh, it's so great. But the idea that Japanese people can actually enjoy the windfalls of this stock market right now, not so much. I mean, my family has invested into just very, very traditional like Forex stuff. And because of the cheap yen, we're seeing um, a higher evaluation. But it's not like we can then take that and go and do a bunch of stuff with it because everything is so much more expensive because of the low yen. So we're going to wait it out, of course, and let's see. Hopefully things go up and we retire early, right? But um, at the same time, it's not like, oh, look at this high valuation. Uh, here's some champagne. There's not this feeling of we amongst the population, but for the investment bankers and all that, I'm sure that this is their one uh, like light at the end of a tunnel filled with uh, Shinkansen trains uh, loaded with uh, debt assets that are barreling towards us as the United States likes to uh, uh, cover its tracks. With the train analogy, it kind of works. I want to take a look at a little bit of China. There's one thing that I um, want to touch on, and it's for good reason. Um, My working theory is that we are in a supply chain war where China is trying to leverage its um, newfound global influence into supply chains and it has the what it's called the one belt and one road initiative or the belt and road initiative where china aims to have dominance worldwide for supply chains but it goes beyond that because they want to use huawei technology to enable it so where you have a chinese consumer i say this all the time a chinese consumer with their huawei phone they look at a marketplace in africa 
They find some coffee beans they want. They place the order. Now, the government knows about it, but they place the order with the Chinese central bank digital currency, the ECNY. Um, and so that order gets processed and uh, the farmer begins preparing the order. But to get the order back to China, China will be sending its uh, maritime ships to go through its maritime routes. And the, the ships are connected via IoT networks and satellites and balloons. And the uh, tracking system is all done in China. And then the ships get to automated ports in Africa built by the Chinese. And then the um, train that was built by the Chinese that the African coffee bean farmer put their goods on arrives at the port. It's a Chinese train, of course. And the robots put the coffee beans onto the ship. The ship goes back through the maritime routes for China. And then the consumer in Beijing gets their coffee beans. Um, just as an example. Uh, and so that's why you don't have the Chinese trying to float their um, currency or to compete with their, with their currency on the national level. They will, my, my working idea is that they're, trying, they're waging war on the supply chains to get more and more people to use Chinese supply chains and therefore use Chinese technology and therefore use the Chinese central bank digital currency to settle trade if they want to act, if companies or countries want to access their trade routes. And that way it would, in, it would replace the U.S. dollar de facto. It wouldn't compete against it. It would just be a replacement for it. Kind of like have WWF and then the WWE and then uh, some new WW uh, wrestling federation comes in and uh, takes up market share, right? That happens all the time. Uh, Chinese central bank buys 10 tons of gold, exceeding its uh, buying spree to 15 straight months. That's one headline. We're not going to get into it. Uh, to back up their ECNY with gold and all these other BRICS nations doing so as well. China to spend US $1 billion to revamp Tanzania-Zambia Railway to move minerals, moving minerals and also consumer goods, such as coffee beans. You got you to kick back something to the population back home in your empire. And But the last one is, um, is the CCP deliberately undermining China's economy. Now, this is kind of going backward to what I was just saying before, but it's also not. What I mean by that is if China wants to compete against or to replace the U.S.-led or the G7 supply chain routes, G20, although a lot of those members are shaky, um, the best way to do it is to harm it. So by inducing harm onto the G7 um, supply chain networks, it increases the possibility for um, Chinese Communist Party supply chain networks to seem more stable and secure and therefore increase their usage. Now, what this would mean is that there's so much foreign money invested into China right now, and it's specifically on China's Pacific side, into Beijing and Shanghai, Shenzhen, and a lot of those areas. Um, but if China sabotages those uh, that economic prosperity, it's going to sink a lot of the financial capital of the West into that destruction. Uh, and this China's Built and Road Initiative is pushing east, meaning it's pushing into um, Russia, into Eastern Asia, down into the Middle East, and down into Africa. So by 
kind of doing a scorched earth policy on the Pacific side. It damages the competition there. The competition then has to figure out how to repair their supply chains while China continues its expansionist um, economic policies into those regions eastward that I just mentioned. And of course, if the Chinese people um, end up making lots of money off of their investments with the um, backing of G7 nations into pension funds and so on into China, well, that might create some sort of allegiance or alliance between them. This is pure speculation on my point. But if you really want, if the Chinese government really wants to push everybody into the East, well, they're going to have to sink their assets in the West of China. I'm sorry, I got it wrong. If <laughs> if China pushing east, uh, I keep thinking of east from a Western perspective. If 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 China wants to push into the west of the world, I'm sorry, west of China into the Central Asia, into the Middle East, into Africa, then it's going to have to sabotage the eastern front of China, which West regards as the west of China, um, west facing the west. You get it. You get it. You get it. Uh, so what that would do is that it would sink the Chinese middle class. They would have to figure out a way to reinvest. If they're told to reinvest into the Belt and Road initiatives, then that's what they will do. And then the West is uh, left scrambling to, to, to recombobulate or reconfigure its supply chains um, in the meantime. This comes to us from japanforward.com. I hate it when I do that. It's like a dyslexic thing. I don't know, but it's also like... You're thinking about Europe as the West and then China as the East and China is trying to get away from the West, which is also America and is trying to push East. But we don't. China's already East in the kind of the, the global framework of perspectives. Anyways, um, Japan Forward has this article called Is the CCP Deliberately Undermining China's Economy? Um, it kind of the road to intentional depression Presenting false goals and false slogans is one of them. If the CCP really did want to sandbag China's economy, what exactly has it done? Uh, the, the CCP has done a good job at packaging or making seem things seem other than they are. It pretends to develop the economy, pretends to be trying to catch up with Europe and the United States. Additionally, it has fabricated grandiose industrial development plans that will never be implemented. However, what the CCP really wanted was to empty the pockets of the people. It wanted to turn all the net worth that the Chinese people had accumulated in the past 30 years of hard work into net debt. By doing so, and this is going into, this, into the real estate bubbles that are, are going on there, which inevitably have been using a lot of Western um, monies to develop and then sink at the same time. It's very nefarious. But the, the Chinese government did kill 60 million of its own people in the Great Leap Forward. It's the same government. So why would they not do it again at some measure? By doing so, it would deprive the Chinese people of their ability to invest or start new businesses. Reduced to such slavery, this is from the article, the Chinese people would then be debt-ridden cowards. They would be toiling and never daring to complain in the slightest. So that's blowing up the real estate bubble and emptying people's pockets. Um, and a planned demise is another title here. It is also important to note that when real estate was destocked in 2015, the CCP poured out real money to keep the bubble growing. Annual real estate loans rose rapidly from 5 trillion yen, $700 billion in 2015, to 7 uh, trillion yen or $970 billion in 2016, and then peaked at 9 trillion yen, $1.25 trillion in 2020. 20. Um, 
then they drive out the foreign enterprises. So the foreign enterprises leave without their money. And then the idea would be to eventually put everybody onto the Chinese um, CBDC, the ECNY model, and then use that to push their Belt and Road Initiative to get people to inevitably in effect, force the grassroots funding of the Belt and Road Initiative for the vision of the supply chain wars that they have going on there. So that, I thought that would article, it's very long, it's very interesting. If you want to read it, it's at MatthewPMBigelow.com where you can go for your show notes, donation ideas, and more. Um we're, we're kind of running out of time here. I got time for a little bit more in the supply chain wars. Why not say something like this? A couple of headlines that we'll tackle. Um, China is tightening its noose on critical min- min- minerals. Uh, shipping insurance rates shore, soar on Red Sea missile attacks. That's what I wanted to cover. This will be the last one for today. Uh, coming to us from japantoday.com. The gist of the article says that because of the Houthis' attacks, the Houthis are backed by Iran, and of course, Iran is a, in, a, in working with China and Russia and North Korea right now. The idea is to again disrupt Western-based or G7-based supply chain routes through the Red Sea um, because of the Israeli attacks on the Palestinians which are, some would argue is a right to self-defense, and others would argue it's a genocide. I don't take sides in wars that do not directly threaten me. But we can kind of imagine that this would be not letting a crisis go to waste scenario where if they want to um, increase their influence on global supply chain rates, uh, they would encourage the Houthis to attack, any, to attack anybody with um, ties to G7 nations and allow Chinese, Iranian, uh, Russian, or other affiliated uh, ships to have those lines be more open. Uh, Of course, we don't really know what's going to happen because these types of wars can expand and expand in ways we wouldn't even imagine. So a lot of these shipping container ships are going around Africa now instead of going through the, um, the Red Sea Canal, the Suez And as a result, it could increase piracy in the Indian Ocean. And China and all these other countries rely on um, the Indian Ocean for their supply chain routes. So while China might have some sort of influence in in certain areas of the world, does it have a lot of influence with the Indians? Not so much. So the Indian uh, affiliated groups might be more willing to attack the Chinese ships if, if if, if things get worse and worse along these lines. And the only reason I raised this issue for uh, the Japan What podcast is that Japan is just so tied at the hip to American policy that if our supply chains end up being hit, we have really no recourse except to pray to God that the oil keeps flowing here. Otherwise, we're doomed because the nuclear power plants are still shut off. So I think that's going to be it for today's uh, podcast. Um. Well, uh, did I play the war? I'm going to play the war of jingle. Die for the war. 
So thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. Remember to go to MatthewPMBigelow.com to get all your podcasting needs there. We're also on the Japan Society 5.0 Beats, which nobody else is covering. And you can also download a new podcasting app for podcasting 2.0 infrastructure, which allows people to send Bitcoin through the app with no middlemen involved. And it's a resiliency check against the spread of big tech censorship that's going to only increase in the future as all of the governments meet all over the world to discuss how to build trust through censorship. That's kind of the ongoing theme here. So get yourself some resiliency apps, the Podverse app, the Podcast Guru app, Fountain app. There's a bunch of them. Just look up Podcasting 2.0 apps and you can get in on the action. So thank you very much for listening to today's podcast, everyone. You found it. It's the Japan What Podcast coming at you from the Tomihisacho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. The armpit of Asia. Until next time, I bid thee, Ja, Mata, Ne.